Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speak in the power of the Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our lives. Lord, we pray that when we hear the Word of God preached, that what we will see is you, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and that we would see life in your eyes, and that we would turn to you and seek you and you alone for that life. In Jesus' name, amen. So who here, whether a child or an adult, has played Minecraft? Okay. Who knows? Who was the creator of Minecraft? Anyone know? Whether his, his uh, whatever, video game name, I don't know, or his maker name, or his real name. Someone raise their hand. What's his name? Notch. Notch. Or Marcus Pearson is his name that was given at birth. Notch was his, I don't know, the name that he took on as the, whatever, video game creator. He created Minecraft, and he sold that company, uh, Mojang, that created Minecraft, for $2.5 billion. And he supposedly, after he made all this money selling the company, um, just basically partied his brains out. And he bought a house uh, for $70 million, outbidding supposedly Beyonce and Jay-Z. I mean, you have to have a lot of money if you're going to outbid Beyonce and Jay-Z. But sadly, Notch took to Twitter after finding all this money and fame and started tweeting about how money didn't bring happiness. He said things like this. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interactions become impossible due to imbalance. And also, in Sweden, I will sit around, he's Swedish, and wait for my friends with jobs and families to have time to do stuff, he didn't say stuff, watching my reflection in the monitor. Sounding very sad here, isn't it? When we sold the company, the biggest effort was into making sure the employees got taken care of, and they all hate me now. Found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. So clearly, even though Marcus Pearson seemingly having everything, or at least everything that people say is important in life, uh, didn't find happiness, even though he could buy anything he wanted, including the amazing mansion that he outbid Jay-Z and Beyonce for. Discontentment, right? Discontentment is a real thing. We walk through our own lives experiencing discontentment of various kinds. We see played out in the news people who seemingly have everything, like Notch, um, and yet not happy. And this kind of discontentment can drive a lot of actions, thoughts, energy in our lives. And I believe that this commandment, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, really speaks to the discontentment that we struggle with and points to this desire that God has given all of us and is that desire for contentment in life. And so we're going to dive into this commandment and see what the Lord has to say about this particular commandment. Again, we've looked at the commandments, looking at its narrow meaning and then looking at its uh, broader meaning. And so when we look at the second table of the commandments, which really look at, if you want to define it a little bit more narrowly, is our love for people. And so we could look at commandments six through nine as sins of actions, murdering, committing adultery, stealing, and lying. But then we could, what we could do with the 10th commandment is this, is we could take the 10th commandment and we could say that the, 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 the breaking of the 10th commandment, coveting, can lead to things like lying, stealing, murdering, and committing adultery. We could think of it in this way, that murder is a taking of a life that is not ours. 
Adultery is, a, is sleeping with a man or woman that is not our spouse. Stealing is the taking of possessions that is not ours. Lying, uh, bringing false witness against someone is taking the reputation of someone, again, that, a reputation that is not ours. The Tenth Commandment clearly reminds us again that the commandments are, are not meant to be just applied on the action level, but on the heart level. And we could really even describe this commandment as the commandment of the heart. Coveting happens on the heart level and can lead, again, to different actions. And so when we talk about um, desires on the heart level, then we have to examine our desires. And so when we talk about desires, we understand that there, there are good desires that we have and that there are bad desires that we have. And it really brings our discussion on the Ten Commandments really full circle because, again, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments throughout of how it points, when Jesus points to broader application, it points to our hearts and what is going on in our, in our hearts. And that we've been looking at how each commandment points to a desire that God created us with, a desire on the heart level that we are seeking fulfillment for, perhaps in God or perhaps through things in this world. And that often our desires do get twisted by the sin in this world and our hearts and in the fall. And that again, again and again, Jesus points us back to Jesus um, and how he is the fulfillment of these applications. Now you heard the commandment read earlier by Marina and uh, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it really seems to try to make the point. It's not, uh, it's not as concise as it could be. It could just say, you shall not covet period. But it does not say that. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God spoke it in a way to really drive home, do not covet anything, giving all those examples. Now, what does it mean to covet? That's a good question to begin with. What is coveting? Now, John Frame says this about uh, just kind of summarizing the theological tradition in terms of what coveting is, uh, but specifically how there can be several stages of desire in our hearts. One, there's a, a, a stage of spontaneous desire, something that you could say catches you off guard. Two, the, there's another stage. The second stage is the nursing of that desire. So a spontaneous desire comes to your heart and you have a choice whether you're going to nurse that desire or not. And Number three, the third stage is then after you've nursed that desire, then there's a, the next stage is making a plan to achieve that desire. And then the fourth stage is then accomplishing that desire, accomplishing the deed that you think fulfills that desire. Now, Roman Catholics would say that stage one, the spontaneous desire is not a sin, but then stages two through four, nursing that desire, making a plan to achieve the desire, accomplishing that desire, that those desires... Um, are sinful. John Calvin, theologian, would say stages three and four are dealt with by the other commandments and that stages one and two are, are what you shall not covet really deals with that level of the spontaneous desire that comes to our hearts and the nursing of that desire. Now again, when we use the word desire, it can be confusing because right, really the use of desire that I've outlined so far in terms of how John Frame talked about it, John Calvin, the Roman Catholic Church, is talking about sinful desires that we have. A sinful, spontaneous desire that we can nurse and make a plan to achieve and accomplish and how we can break God's commandment in uh, pursuing those desires. And so 
it's helpful to distinguish those stages, but we have to remember that desires that we feel in our heart and how we commonly use that word are not inherently wrong or sinful. And so even when we look at this specific commandment, we have to make a difference between wanting something and coveting something. And Tim Keller gives a really great um, distinction between it. He says this. He says, in wanting, you're the dog and the want is the tail. In coveting, the want is the dog and you're the tail. When it wags you, it has you by the neck and it has you by the jugular and it is in charge. So he makes the difference then, right, that the difference between wanting and coveting is when you want something, you are in control of those desires. When you are coveting something, that the coveting takes control of you. That's the difference he's trying to make. And I think it's important when we just talk about wanting things, and again, you know, the reason why we look at a story like Marcus Pearson, we think he has it all. He could get whatever he wants. He has the financial ability to get whatever he wants. And we can often um, put down wanting stuff, thinking that's the response to not coveting. Amber and I had a good friend who said, it's good to want things. It's good to want things. And I think that's, that was a really helpful way for me to remember that truth. Our goal in life is not to eradicate wants and desires from our heart. You could say Buddhism really drives in that direction, to eradicate wants from our, our life. And that's, that's our solution to all the conflict, whether it's with people, with nations, or whether it's our own personal conflict, that's where the conflict comes from. But God doesn't say wanting things is wrong. He says coveting things is wrong. And so when we try to eradicate wants from our hearts, what we really do is we harden our hearts. And when we harden our hearts, what happens unintentionally is that we're unable to want the things of God either, or to want more of God. And it's not surprising that this quote that's been said in many different ways, but it's originally Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam, he says, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all.'" This quote that's so well known is simply driving at, it's good to want to love. We shouldn't, just because we have our hearts broken, then stop wanting relationship, stop wanting love. It is better to have loved than not loved at all. A man or a woman without needs, without wants, don't want or need God. What use do we have for God if we have eradicated want from our life? God says throughout Scripture that we are to desire Him, to depend on Him, to want Him, and to need Him. And so we can't just go to a very simplistic answer when we look at you shall not covet. We can't just say we must eradicate all wants from our lives because then we will harden our hearts. So we have to ask the question, what's so wrong about coveting anyway, right? And I'm going to be quoting from this article quite a lot because it's so good on this topic, but it's Joy Davidman, who is C.S. Lewis's wife, um, but a writer in her own right and well-known in her time. Hard to be as well-known as C.S. Lewis, but, um, but she says in her book, 
the age and the smoke, I'm sorry, the sin of our age. Let me, the book is called The Smoke on the Mountain and Interpretation of the Ten Commandments. But she's quoting someone else, D.R. Davis. D.R. Davis is the sin of our age. D.R. Davis says this, but I'll be quoting Joy Davidman later. He says this, the good life has become inseparable from the maximum possible consumption of thing, things, products. The dogma of the new religion is the dogma of increasing wants. It's very, it's not how we talk today, but he's basically saying that what we worship today is getting more stuff. <laughs> getting more stuff. And, you know, this was like a long time ago this was written, but how much easier it is to get more stuff, to want more stuff in today's age. And you might say, I don't get this commandment. I'm not hurting anyone by wanting other people's stuff. What's the big deal? Joy Davidman is really commenting about the consumer society that she was seeing develop in the 1950s. And so how much more true are those words now? And it's not even... You know, we talk about how consumeristic our culture is today, and it's, it, it, it doesn't just affect wanting goods, buying stuff. It affects the way we choose churches. It affects the way we approach relationships, how we can consume not just things, but people as well. How we'll use people and then discard them when we're done with what they brought to our lives with. On, even on just a psychological level, I think coveting things keeps us from closeness with God and with people. If we're not content with what God has provided in our lives, then we can easily not be content with God himself, frustrated with him for jipping us of all the good things that we're missing out on in life. How can we be close to God if we think he's withholding good things from us. Joy Davidman says this, and it's an extended quote, but it's so good. She says this, can we reasonably expect happiness from an insatiable appetite, which no matter how it stuff its belly is still psychologically like Oliver Twist in the poorhouse, holding an empty bowl, begging, I want some more. Can the best of us feel that he is not corrupted by the dogma of increasing wants. Most of us are modest enough in our demands. Okay, really track with this. Most of us are modest enough in our demands. We reject the disease of greed, the perversion that turns a decent little shopkeeper into a recluse dead of hunger on a mattress stuffed with $10 bills, turns a cheerful girl in a shabby coat into a fretful neurotic in diamonds and mink. She was around the Hollywood circles a lot. Turns, on, turns an idealistic young writer into a twitching Hollywood executive out to knife his best friend in the back. These, we feel, are the exception and mental cases. We could never go like that. We don't grudge our neighbor any success, any success. We just want a standard of living that will enable us to maintain our self-respect. We have no heart's desire for a Cadillac. We'll be satisfied with a Chevy for this year at least. And of course, we've got to buy a television set, but that's only because the kids are so humiliated on account of all their friends having one. It's kind of a funny example given pretty much everyone has at least one TV now. Um, coveting really is such just a regular part of our everyday life that 
it's almost driven to the subconscious level. We're not even aware that we are coveting anymore. I've been told by many women, and this was a surprise to me because I, I couldn't relate to it, that it can be normal practice for them to walk into a room and almost subconsciously scan the room and, and rank themselves in a hierarchy of how beautiful they are compared to others. Or I've heard MBA students talk about how they'll go to an event and very quickly as they walk into a room, they will rank themselves judging the other MBA students and candidates according to how good looking they are, how poised they are, the things that they say that seem intelligent. There's so much of that jockeying, coveting of other people's gifts and looks and skills. I remember once I went on a pastor's retreat, and I think it was particularly funny because it was a pastor's retreat. And what we went to do on that pastor's retreat, one of the things we did was we went clay shooting, right? You know, when you fire those things up in the air and you shoot it down. First time for me, city boy from Hong Kong, to do that. that was, it was funny because there was so much jockeying amongst the pastors on who could shoot the most clays down, Right? It was almost like, right, like the one who could shoot the most clays was the most manly of the pastors. And just the amount of deflective, humorous comments, under breath curses, and chins held high after you shot one down. And it was just, again, almost humorous. And how we coveted the executive pastor that day because he shot down the most clays out of all of us. And again, you could just laugh at this storm. You're like, oh, who cares? It's just harmless fun. So what? There was this jockeying and coveting of clay shooting skills. But you could also say there was a certain amount of preoccupation that went on throughout the clay shooting bonding event that kept us from connecting with each other because we were so concerned about how many clays we shot down and how we compared to the other guys coveting the one who shot the most. And after all, the whole point of the retreat was to connect, not worry about how you stacked up against the other pastors in terms of shooting down clays. All the emotional noise and psychological noise and energy that comes with coveting can keep us from loving God and loving people in the way that we want to and that we are called to by God. It keeps us from engaging in our faith, in our families, in our work, in a way that's free, in the way that God calls us to. Instead, we can end up being driven by a slave master who demands that we achieve and perform so that our covetous desires can be fulfilled. Except the slave master fails to tell us that he can never be satisfied. You know, in our, in our church community, it's not likely that our coveting leads to, in a narrow sense, to stealing and adultery and to, to lying and murdering. But on a deeper heart level, as we've talked about the broad application of these commandments, our coveting can lead to that kind of broad transgression of stealing, adultery, and lying. It can lead us and drive us to live that isolated, suburban life where we're not seeking that life of a community, of love, that God calls us to, a a life of sacrifice, one another 
that God calls us to. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson says this, Covetousness is a dangerous sin as it checks all that is good. It is an enemy to grace. It damps good affections as the earth puts out the fire. Covetousness hinders the efficacy of the word preached. We preach to men to get their hearts in heaven, but where covetousness is predominant, it chains them on earth, to earth. You may as well bid an elephant fly in the air as a covetous man live by faith. What a powerful quote. Covetousness can chain us to the earth and keep us from having eyes for the things of God. So what is the opposite of covetousness? And I believe it's contentment. First Timothy says this, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul also says in Philippians, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul speaks about finding his contentment in Christ. And whether he has a lot or nothing, he can be content in Christ. This commandment, again, is a commandment of the heart. Covetousness kills contentment. Contentment cannot be found through comparison. When we seek to accumulate things, right, we hope that the more stuff we have, the happier we will be, the more content we will be. But as we see from Marcus Pearson's example, it's a bottomless pit. But we also do it in the opposite direction, where we seek to find contentment through comparison by telling ourselves, well, I'm blessed. I have more than that person who is poor. I'm not ill with cancer like that person over there. And we try to make ourselves content with what we have by saying, at least I'm not suffering as much as these people. But when we do that, again, the gain is very short-lived. And in fact, what we do is we diminish those who are suffering in those ways by trying to use their example as a reason for our contentment. There's a time, yes, to count your blessings as there are hymns that sing this. And yet if our main strategy towards contentment is simply counting our blessings, our earthly blessings, it will fall short of delivering the contentment that Christ truly offers us. Contentment is not found through comparison. Contentment is found through Christ. It is Christ that sets us free from that covetousness and delivers on the promise for contentment. Everything we desire ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ. It's amazing, right? We look at the gospel. The gospel says, God so loved the world that it gave his only son for us. That's 
the foundation and the beginning of contentment for us to know that God so loved us that he took on flesh. He so loved us that he lived and died for us, that he sacrificed himself on the cross for us, that he ascended into heaven for us and gave us the Holy Spirit to dwell with him for all eternity in oneness with God. And he promises to one day return for us to consummate the empty places that we still are looking to be filled with something, promising that it is he who will be the consummation of all the desires that we feel like have not been met. He is the one who will bring that contentment. And so we have to ask the question in a practical sense, how do we become more content? And I want to outline four things. The first is this, to go deeper into your desire with God. C.S. Lewis says this, and he's talking about lust in a very 50s British roundabout way. Lying on that study sofa, I had sensations which you can imagine. And at once I knew that the enemy would take advantage of the vague longings and tenderness to try and make me believe later on that he had the fulfillment that I really wanted. So I balked him by letting the longings go even deeper and turn my mind to the one, the real object of all desire, which you know my view is what we are really wanting in all wants. He's saying even in the example of lust, when you come across that, don't just try to eradicate it. Go deeper and ask, what is this desire really after? Can it be fulfilled by nursing that sinful desire of lust? Planning to fulfill it, achieving it? Or is it really after our God who is the one who will fulfill? When we looked at the four stages of desire, we talked about how the first stage is spontaneous desire. So I would say when you feel that spontaneous sinful desire come on, don't let your first response just be, I must eradicate this desire. Let your first response be, slow down in that desire. Invite God into that desire and say, God, what is it that I'm really longing for in this moment? Is it really this thing? Or is it something else? What is the legitimate desire that I have behind this desire? Go deeper into that desire and ask God to be the one to fulfill that desire. To meditate on how God can meet that desire and be the one who brings contentment. And then to rest in God, meeting that desire. You might say, is there really a good desire behind every sinful desire? I don't really know the answer to that question, but I know at least it's much more than we commonly imagine. Let me give another example. Imagine I have a desire to murder someone. What if you ask me this? Why? What is the desire behind your murderous desire? Well, I'm angry at this guy who stole my girlfriend. And you ask me, why does it make you so angry? Because he took something from me that is so important. And you ask me, what's so important about your girlfriend? Well, when I'm with her, I feel so loved. And now that love has been taken away from me. So you're saying, ultimately, even in your 
murderous desire, what you really want is to be loved. Yeah. Well, I can relate to that. We all want to be loved. And God loves you so much more than you can imagine. Even in your murderous thoughts, confess those to him and turn to him who loves you so much more than you can imagine. So the first thing, and how do we become more content, is to go deeper into your desire and to find God to be the one who fulfills that desire. The second is this, is seek first his kingdom. And again, Joy Davidman says it so well. She says this, Christianity is everywhere paradoxical, everywhere too difficult for simple black and white thinking, but nowhere more so than in its doctrine of worldly goods, for they are good things, and yet we must not long for them. They are to be enjoyed, and yet must not make that enjoyment our goal. If we have them, the best possible thing we can do with them is to give them away. If we don't have them, we may expect to get them, but we mustn't worry about it. It seems that we are told not to desire what, by our very natures, we cannot live without. The paradox is easier once we remember that the test runs, quote, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Once we remember ends and means. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Not seek only the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Contentment can't be found in just telling ourselves that some people have it worse than us. Some people suffer more than us. It can't be found through that comparison. It can't be found through having more than others. As much as we should be grateful for the good things in life, we find our contentment when we have first sought the kingdom of God and we have seen the goodness in God himself, the goodness of the creation that he's given us, the goodness of the blessings he has given us, yes, and allow his kingdom to put everything in perspective for our life. Our contentment has to transcend the things of this world because we were made for more than this world. When good things, when good created things become more important to us than God, then they become our idols. Then we worship those things. But we are called to worship the God who brings life, not created things that cannot bring life. The worship of Idols simply lead to slavery that cannot satisfy but the worship of God. And putting first his kingdom is what will make our hearts content in the way that we long for. The third thing is this, that we, and this might seem like a bit redundant, but I would say, want God more, much more. Joy Davidman again says this, There is, in the last analysis, only one way to stop covetousness and the destruction of body and soul that spring from covetousness, and that is to want God so much that we can't be bothered with inordinate wants for anything else. I mean, perhaps it's saying the same thing, but I think the genuine question that comes out of this is simply this. Do you really want God? Do you really want God? 
Do you really think what God has to offer is the most life-giving thing in this world and beyond this world? If you don't wrestle with that very basic question, then like so many in our world, we will just thoughtlessly drift into coveting the things of this world because they seemingly offer so much life. Yet it's not enough for what we were designed and created for. It's like when you have conversations with people who are either young Christians or or seeking, and they ask the questions, well, does it mean I have to give up smoking? Does that mean I have to give up sex before marriage? Does that mean I have to give up a high-flying job? And really, the answer is, it's the wrong question. Finding faith in God, finding relationship with God is not about what you have to give up. It is about what you will gain through the riches of Christ, through Christ himself. Yes, there is a calling to a life of sacrifice, but the gain in the riches of Christ is so much greater than the sacrifices that we're called to. Lastly, we're able to be content in God if we covet the things of God. Thomas Watson says this, the third remedy for covetousness is to covet spiritual things more. Covet grace, for it is the best blessing. Covet heaven, which is the region of happiness. If we covet heaven more, we shall covet earth less. Oh, covet after heavenly things. There's the tree of life, the mountains of spices, the rivers of pleasures, the honeycomb of God's love dropping, the delights of angels, and the flower of joy fully ripe and blown. There is a pure air to breathe. No fogs or vapor of sin arise to infect the air, but the sun of righteousness enlightens the whole horizon continually with his glorious beams. You have to get specific with the promises that God gives us in his word and scripture. If you simply very generally and vaguely believe in Jesus, then in the course of spiritual battle, the enemy will come at you with every angle he can think of to tempt you away from Christ. Be very specific about the promises that God gives you through Jesus. And then stand strong in your faith with the, with the vision of God large enough, substantial enough to battle against the temptations of this world, to counter the enemy's attacks. Turn to Jesus who is the fulfillment of your desire for contentment. But not just your desire for contentment, but as we've looked at the last 10 weeks, also your desire for worship, your desire for a relationship with God, your desire for integrity, your desire for rest and purpose, your desire for hierarchy, hierarchy and equality, your desire for life, your desire for faithfulness, your desire for truth, your desire for fullness. When you see that Jesus is the fulfillment for all of those desires that the commandments reflect to us, then we will see that Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of our desire for contentment. He is the one who can meet our desires. Covetousness kills contentment. Contentment cannot be found through comparison. Contentment is found through Christ alone. So I call you 
brothers and sisters in Christ to go deeper into your desire with God, to want God, want Him so much more, to seek first His kingdom and to covet the things of God, for therein you will find the contentment you long for, that you were designed for. Let's pray.